Well, again, welcome, and we're glad you're here. We are wrapping up the sermon series of this summer. We've been looking at the minor prophets, and if you haven't been here, the minor prophets are the end of our Old Testament collection. It's 12 prophets, and uh, they're called minor because they're shorter than the, the earlier prophets. So we're going to wrap that up this morning, and we're, um, we're coming to the book of Malachi. As my sons say, it's actually Malachi. Um, actually, sound different in Hebrew, but we say Malachi. So Malachi, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to spill over a little bit into chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the, the bulletin. And this is kind of a sort of a strange note to start a sermon on, but I was thinking recently about what, what are the worst preaching experiences I've ever had? And, and I want to say this on the front end. What I'm talking about is, from my point of view, at a subjective level, how I felt. Because it, the way God works, it can be that you had a bad preaching experience as a preacher, and then God really uses that and works in somebody's life. Or, or somebody becomes a Christian that day when you thought it was a big bomb. So I don't know what became of the preaching on these days, but one was at a, a little small-town church that really needed to close and had not closed yet. And one was at a Christian school when I preached in their chapel. And um, neither were in South Carolina and neither were in the same state. So I'm going to be as, as, uh, as vague as possible. But I was thinking about, okay, so why were they such bad preaching experiences? Because, you know, like in church history, if somebody had a bad preaching experience, they were killed. And that was that wasn't my obviously that wasn't mine at all. It was um, it was that when I preached, there was no disagreement. There, no one got upset, and no one seemed particularly energized. Um, the the looks and the feedback of the people that I was standing in front of was sort of a uh, been there, done that completely unaffected as they walk out. Again, I don't know if that was the case, but that's how it looked and that's how it felt. Um, That is a lot like the people that Malachi is prophesying to. And I'm going to talk about this more in a second, but every commentary I looked at when they talk about what's the feel, what, what is the Israelite culture like at this time, People keep using the same words. Different commentators would say disillusioned, cynical, half-hearted. Now, let me just say a little bit more as as far as intro. Um, This is not only the last book in our Bible. This is as late into the prophets as you go before the New Testament. Um, This is in the 400s B.C. This is, round numbers, about 100 years after the people had come back from the Babylonian exile and rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the second temple. So that's, that's old news. That's been around for about 100 years. The people are there. When you read Malachi, you can tell they, they go to worship. They, they offer stuff to the Lord. They get married. Uh, the priesthood is still operational. And, but the mood is cynical and disillusioned. Nobody's on an anti-God rally. No one's having an atheist rally. They're just sort of on um, apathetic autopilot. And God sends Malachi, 
And where I want to pick up is, and I, I, I'm not going to preach a sermon on the front end, but all through the book of Malachi, there's this, there's this back and forth where God will say, here's who I am, or here's who you are. And six or seven different times, the people's response to God is, well, how is that the case? How are you that way? Or how are we that way? So I want you to listen to how they do that in this passage. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the law and thank you for the prophets. And thank you not only that your precious son, but the apostles whom he sent out all testified to the fact that the law and the prophets were already telling us the gospel. They were already pointing ahead to our great Savior, our great Messiah. And how we need your help to see that. We We don't do well with the Old Testament. We feel like we're on such unfamiliar ground. So please help us and open our eyes and make us attentive. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a campus minister, I had the opportunity a couple of times to go to Bucharest, Romania. I've mentioned that, I think, recently. And uh, that's the only time I've ever set foot in the former... Soviet Union, the only time I've ever seen former, um, you know, what, what they used to call Eastern Bloc nations. The first time that we went, it was just, you know, this was our first time to see it. And uh, I was a blank slate and just learning as we went. And we finally saw the great government building in Bucharest. And you may or may not know this, uh, a long time ago, Bucharest was known as the Paris of the East and just apparently had miles and miles and miles of this beautiful, you know, kind of neoclassical architecture. And just long story short, communism in general, and Ceausescu in particular, just drove that place into the ground. And one of the really ugly things he did was he tore down 16 residential blocks in the heart of the city to build this government building. It's one of the largest in the world. It's like comparable to the Pentagon in size. So uh, first time we saw it, we were in the cab with a uh, cab driver, spoke English, and we said, ah, that, that's the government building. And he, I wish I could replicate it. He looked over the seat at us and said, 
the people's palace. That that little two-second window was such a window into what communism had been for him. That, you know, the the name of this thing, lofty, collective, communal, the people's palace, and just total cynicism about what a joke. We don't go in there. You know, the haves go in there. The power brokers go in there. We don't go in there. Now, you know that voice, and, and we have that voice sometime, where we say the thing that's factually true, and it's sort of with a whatever, you know, roll of the eyes or tone of voice is just, okay, I'm, I'm going to say the thing that's factually true, but those of us who are even mildly observant know that that has no bearing on how things actually are. Um, again, every commentary I looked at kept using these same adjectives about the 400s B.C. when Malachi's prophecy comes. Disillusioned. Cynical. Apathetic. Half-hearted. And I'm going to use one word. I didn't see this in a commentary, but I'm, I, I, I heard a friend of mine say this. He was describing... What's a word for people who've been around enough Bible and been around enough God and been around enough worship that it neither upsets them nor particularly energizes them? And the word he used was inoculated. You know what happens when you get inoculated? You get just enough of the germ or the infection for your body never to really get the infection, for it never really to spread through the whole of your being. You're inoculated. What you've got in Malachi's day are people that, in a sense, they're inoculated. There's enough God, there's enough temple, there's enough agreement, there's enough worship that no one is particularly uh, upset nor joyful. So here's the two questions I want to ask. How, how did the people get to this point? And then in their disillusionment, what does God provide for them? And we're going to just try to use this passage to, to, to hone in on that. Um, and by the way, just to give you kind of a feel for what's going on at this point, you know, I said that all through this book, you've, get, you've got this back and forth between God and the people. God will make an assertion, and the people will say, well, how? How is that the case? Here's how Malachi opens. First it says, the oracle of Malachi, the prophet to Israel. Then the first words that are spoken are God talking. And he says this, I have loved you. You know what the people say? How have you loved us? I mean, that is where so many people are right now. You know, whether it's Jake talking about the hymn or Jake setting us up to confess and, and be assured of pardon or whether it's somebody reading a Bible passage or hearing Christian teaching that all the time we're talking about the love of God and the care of God and we can say that and proclaim it. And like at a basic factual level, we can agree with it. But really the feeling inside is, yeah, but like how? Because what, what we feel right now is that I'm tired. Or I hate my job. Or I hate my spouse. Or I'm tired of not having a spouse. Or I'm tired of my children. Or I'm tired of not having a child. I'm tired of feeling this way. This is, this is old and this is now. So how did they get to this point? And, and I really I want to give credit to, um, not, not a close friend, but an acquaintance, a woman named Nancy Guthrie, 
teacher and a writer based in Nashville, and um, she, she, she wrote a book about the prophets called The Word of the Lord, and she gave one of the most helpful bird's-eye view observations that really affected my study this week. Here's what she said. All these prophets that are bunched together in the Bible, they didn't all live and prophesy at the same time. Hundreds of years apart. So, you know, it, we, we're on shaky ground in the Old Testament. It's not familiar to us. So you might feel like the, all these guys hung out and they went like to pubs together and they, you know, what are you prophesying about? They, they lived at very different times. Well, some of them were contemporaries, but overall they lived at different times. So Malachi is the latest one in the 400s. So for him, someone like Jeremiah would be like to us someone from the Civil War. And Ezekiel would be like someone before World War I. Does that make sense? That's how, that's how much further back. So their prophecies had been read and heard in Malachi's day as he's just sort of starting his, his ministry. And here's what Nancy Guthrie pointed out. What does it do to people, for instance, when they go to temple... Or they go where the law and the prophets are read. And so someone unrolls the Ezekiel scroll. And Ezekiel is a tough book for me. The last eight or nine chapters of it are this complicated, detailed description of a glorious temple. And it's a really baffling passage because it's bigger even than the one that Solomon built. And there's things that you'd expect to be in the temple that aren't in the temple. And there's all this description given to it at the end of Ezekiel. So they would have read that. So what would you do? Let's say that you're a parent. What would you do if uh, you had been in the temple and there's this reading of this bigger, more expansive, more glorious temple, but the one you see in Jerusalem is a second temple that's not even as good as the one Solomon built? What, what if you're a parent and your son said, is that what we have now? When does God do that? Or, or try this. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both give prophecies of God saying, one of these days, I'm going to burst into your life. And really it seems to be saying, when you come back from your captivity, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out your old hearts. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Child aside, what if you're the adult and you're kind of looking around going, so I guess that's happening now. I guess we're the people with the new hearts. I guess we're the people where God has taken out our old hearts and given us new hearts where we love Him and we obey Him. And you kind of look around and you look at yourself and you feel like, do I keep saying what I'm supposed to say or do I say what I think is really happening? You know, it's almost like the position of a teacher. <laughs> if, if, if you've got a classroom where they say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, if a child says, what is indivisible? Like, what does it mean that the U.S. is indivisible? I mean, that, at that point, the teacher's kind of thinking, do I say what I'm supposed to or do I kind of like admit what things are like? Uh, what, what if a child went to church with a parent and a child <clears throat> said the Apostles' Creed and said, the communion of the saints, what's that? And what if you have a parent that, like, hasn't developed real relationships with the church, has felt very frustrated with the church, feels like Christians don't love and they're kind of fake, and that parent's thinking, 
do I say the party line or do I tell them how it really is? And what Nancy Guthrie pointed out is that seems to be just the overall mood in Israel at this point. They're at the end of, they don't know this, but we do, of all the prophets. They were in captivity. God brought them back. They rebuilt the temple. They're back to worshiping. They're back to working. Law and the prophets are read, all that stuff. And there's just like, there's really nothing great happening. You know, it's like the kid in The Incredibles. I think this is the second time I've referred to The Incredibles in this Minor Prophet series. And I'm, and I'm fine with that. But, uh, but there's this scene where Mr. Incredible, you know, he's got this horrible office job and he's not really Mr. Incredible. He's getting out of a car. And this little kid is riding by on his bike and he's looking, just staring at Mr. Incredible. And he said, kid, what are, you, what are you waiting for? And he said, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. That's like the people of Malachi's day. Like, I don't know. Just, it's got to be better than this. And what you find out when you study Malachi is that that is now starting to, <clears throat> what would you say, that, that, that's flavoring their lives. And guess what it looks like? Sort of formality of worship without heart. And uh, they're either marrying the wrong people or they're divorcing who they're married to. And they don't really want to give. Or when they give, they kind of give crummy stuff. Like instead of obeying the law and bringing this bull or this lamb without defect, they'll bring the crummy one they wanted to get rid of anyway. Cynical belief, cynical hearts, cynical life, and it's affecting them. So what does God say to them? And this is amazing. Because I'm sure they think, hey, look, God, be glad I'm showing up. And God comes to them and says, you have wearied me. And so, true to form, they say, how have we wearied you? He says, you know, when you talk, it's always alarming for God to quote you back to you. (laughs) Uh, When you talk, you say things like, well, you know, I guess God delights in bad people because it seems like the bad people have great lives and we're like going to temple and we're kind of tithing, kind of, and, and, uh, and we're doing, we've got the priesthood and we're doing our thing. And like, look at our lives, it's not that great. And these other nations are awesome. And then the question, where's the God of justice? Or how we would put it, where's fairness? Where's fairness in this life? Man, uh, let, let, me, let me pause here and, and ask this. I mean, that's how they got there, but are you cynical? Uh, are, are, when, when you hear, and whether it's at downtown Prez or whether it's at maybe a study that you go to or you read the Bible or you maybe, maybe if you pray at a table over a meal, is there the feeling of, I guess... No, I'm not joining Atheist Society of America if there is such a thing, but like, I, I, yeah, okay, yeah. We'll, I guess we'll keep doing that. I guess this is as good as it gets. Because I would say that is a lot of us. That, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's like someone is looking at us saying, do you realize that the God who made the entire universe by the word of His power, every Every molecule, 
and every nebula and galaxy by the word of His power that He offers us a relationship to Him through His Son and that He loved us so much that His own precious Son became man to live and die and be raised for us. That really, even as we're hearing that, we're thinking, I want to go skiing. I don't disagree with anything that's said, but I can't think of a better scenario now than to like just head down a really steep slope and be surrounded by beauty and to feel the wind in my face and to eat a big meal that night and just disengage for about six days. And you know what? That's a great thing to do. That's a great, great thing to do. But really, like the feeling that what I most need right now is some fun and diversion and excitement and energizing because nothing else is doing it. That's where a lot of us are. What do you think you most need right now? If that's you. And if that's you, my encouragement to you would be, don't fake it, like even within yourself and go, no, that's not me. Because we can kind of, like, you can kind of hear it's not a good thing. But my encouragement would be to own it and to say, that is me. This morning, that been, that's me and that's been me. So, to people like that and to people like us, what does God provide? And man, it is something. And he's going to speak in terms of, I'm going to send you two messengers. Now this is, but pay attention, okay? Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Very important. Okay, I'm going to send the first messenger... The first messenger prepares the way for whom? For me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who are these two messengers? And it's interesting that in our English Bibles, this is the end of the Old Testament, and you go straight from this to the New Testament because in the Gospel of Mark, there's a brief quote from this passage at the very beginning. It's, it's bunched with a quote from Isaiah. But Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, says this explicitly. And this is great because a lot of these prophecies are hard to understand. We don't totally know what some of them mean, but what's really great is when Jesus says, let me tell you what this prophecy means. He does that in Matthew 11, down there in italics below our passage. I want you to see this for yourselves. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist, not Apostle John, but John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi 3. So, when you know, we're followers of Jesus. If Jesus says the fulfillment of the first messenger is John the Baptist, we're going with that. It's John the Baptist, that he comes to prepare the way for the second messenger. So the second messenger is whom? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And that's amazing because the Lord says, the second messenger is me. But the messenger is someone sent. And I would say that is a little clue about the Trinity. God is going to send God. The first messenger gets the people ready for Yahweh to send Yahweh. And he's called what? The messenger of the covenant. What's the covenant? The one of a kind, globally unique bond between God and his people. And it's as if the Lord is saying, do you want to not only hear about the covenant, do you want to see the covenant? Do you want to see one who will keep it perfectly? And here's what they can't know. Do you want to see one who will take the curses for all of you who break it? Well, I'm sending him to you. You say, where's God? We want to see God. He is coming to you, and who will be able to handle it when he comes to his temple? It's Christ. What will the messenger of the covenant do when he gets there? What do these disillusioned people need that God provides for? Look in verses 2 through 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Get this. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Here's what God says. To you, when you don't expect it, I'm going to send the messenger of the covenant. And he'll come with fire. Now, very important. Malachi and the other prophets attest to there's going to be a judgment fire. Malachi talks about the arrogant and the evil being burned like stubble. But we've given that a good bit of time in this series. So I want to, I want to drill down on the other kind of fire. This fire. It's not a destroying fire. It's a what? Refining fire. The fire of the jeweler. The fire of the crucible to cleanse the gold, cleanse the silver. The messenger of the covenant will come and he will refine whom? The sons of Levi. Who's that? Who are the sons of Levi? The priests. He's going to come and he's going to refine, in some ways, the men who are the pace setters for Israelite religion. Now, did Jesus do that? And let me be teach you here again for a second. Something that's come up in this series is that I sometimes realize that I make a little dance move when I teach. I come just having a little waltz with myself. I hope that's not uh, distracting. It's distracting me, actually, as as I think about it. But the prophets will sometimes, in their prophecy, they'll describe something near and something far and they'll describe it like it's one thing. And Jesus actually did this too as a prophet. So they'll just give one oracle, one prophecy, but when it's fulfilled, there's a close component and a far component. The messenger of the covenant is going to refine the priesthood. How did that happen near? 
And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but do you you know what it says in the book of Acts? This is actually one of the most encouraging things to me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. This is after Jesus ascended to heaven, growth of the church. It starts in Jerusalem, and it says in Acts 6, verse 7, that many of the priests became believers. And we can kind of fly past that at 50 miles an hour, some of the greatest opposition to Jesus during his ministry was the chief priests, plus probably other priests. Because you know what? If he's right, what's that going to do? It's going to upend everything that we're about. If you were a priest and you became a believer in Jesus, guess what you also became? Unemployed. And many priests believed in Jesus. Many realized all those bulls, all those lambs, all that incense, all that smoke, all this stuff going up to God, all that pointed ahead to this man and he has fulfilled it. He has taken away forever the sins of God's people. And they believed it. Yes, they, they were cleansed. And if they became believers, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit and God worked in them the rest of their lives. But what about us? What, how is it good news to us that the messenger of the covenant refines the priesthood? Let's go back over some old ground. What is the temple now? The people of God. The New Testament is clear on this. Not a physical temple. The temple now, God's house now, is His people. Who are the priests now? in God's temple. Who's the high priest? Who's the high priest? Jesus. Who are the under-priests? The men and women who believe. We're the priests. What does it mean that Christ refines us as priests? I said this about the actual sons of Levi, but I'll say it about us too. When you believe in Christ, He sends His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to live inside of us. And for the rest of a believer's life, He works in us to conform us to the image of Christ. He works in us to beautify us from the inside out. And He gets to places that we are not objective about. We're hardly objective about anything that concerns us. And He refines us, often through pain. And I had the strangest juxtaposition happen to me this week. I read kind of a, kind of a booky, academic New Testament article about one New Testament scholar said, there's a passage in the New Testament where he thinks the writer was thinking about this passage. And it's in 1 Peter. And Peter talks about, hey, when you go through an extremely painful time, and you go through a test, don't be surprised by, in English translations it'll say the painful trial. But a more accurate rendering would be, don't be surprised when you go through the fire. God is testing you, 
and refining you. And just a few verses later, Peter refers to, he begins this where? At the house of God, and he's talking about Christians. So I had that rolling around in my mind, and then I had lunch with one of you, and you said that it was okay to say this anonymously, and one of you sitting across the table from me said, I thought that two years ago I really knew myself pretty, pretty well. And I've been through maybe the hardest season of my life, and I think for the first time I'm just seeing who I actually am, and I do not like it. And at the risk of sounding melodramatic, that's kind of one of those moments of take your shoes off, you're on holy ground, because that has all the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. That here's a good person, here's a moral person, here's an intact person. And through the work of the Spirit of Christ, they're looking up and going, he's, he's burning things away that I didn't even know that I needed burned away. I've already said in this series, it is uncanny how when elders meet with some of you about membership and we talk about your lives and your background, <clears throat> talk about your story, how often people say, like, that no one says, you know what, I was like, I was at a Swiss resort, uh, and I was coming at the end of two weeks, and I was eating a pastry, and God really worked in my life. And that might happen sometimes, but, it, like, typically it's, I just got divorced, or I just went bankrupt, or I was fired, or I was sad, and God worked in my life. This fiery season, this fiery trial, and he refined, and it's not a judgment fire. It's a refining fire. Um, The greatest short story I've ever read, and I don't read like you probably think I read, the greatest short story I've ever read is Revelation by Flannery O'Connor. And it's mostly about a really churchy woman named Mrs. Turpin, Ruby Turpin, and she and her husband work on a hog farm. And Mrs. Turpin looks down on almost everybody. She looks down on poor whites. She looks down on blacks. She looks down on others. And she has a crisis that I won't get into, but you need to read it. She has a crisis moment, and it upends her whole life. And so she goes home that day, and she's taking care of the hogs, and she's just churning. And it's dusk, and there's a streak in the sky, and she has a vision at the end of the story. And the vision is that that streak turns into something like a suspension bridge between her farm and heaven. And the bridge passes through a fire to go to God. And she looks on the bridge and all these people are dressed in white and they're proceeding to heaven on the bridge. And the first people she sees at the front of the line are poor whites and blacks and freaks. Flannery O'Connor loved the word freaks. Freaks and they're dancing and being freaky. And at the back of the line, she, she sees... It doesn't say she sees herself and her husband, Claude, but she sees people like them. The, like, orderly people. The on-top-of-things people. It's the people that she identifies with. And then Flannery O'Connor says, Yet, she could see by the shocked and altered looks on their faces that even their virtues were being burned away. And I don't know how this sickly woman in Milledgeville, Georgia, wrote like that. 
that it is typically the religious people, the good, intact, orderly, moral people, that for God to do something glorious... And the story ends with her hearing the crocuses, the locusts, what, you know, the, the, the southern noises, and it sounds like a choir to her now. She had a vision of the gospel. That for you to move toward God, I will have to burn away what you are most proud of. If you're here this morning and you honestly are disillusioned or cynical, maybe the thing that you most like about yourself, that you are perceptive. And that really just a few of us get it. Maybe that's the very thing that God must burn away so that you can become like a child and be in His kingdom and have joy. And it is the dickens to go through the fire. It is the dickens. But that is His love. The Spirit of Christ refines us because He loves us. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways we're torn about whether to ask for this or not because we don't want fire. We don't want pain and testing. And yet, so that we might be beautiful, so that we might be joyful priests, Would you refine us? And Father, if there's anyone here who the fire they face is not a refining fire, it is still a a judging fire, would you enable him or her to trust that the Messiah went to that for us, went through that for us? You would give him or her faith in Christ. Cleanse us, O Lord. Change us, make us different. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.